Luke, and you're looking at Luke chapter 6. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there is a blue Bible in the chair in front of you. And um, Luke is found in the New Testament, two major divisions of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. The back third is the New Testament. It begins with Matthew, Mark, and goes to Luke. Luke. So this is our last time in Luke for a while. Uh, We're going to go into a Christmas series next week. I'm calling the series Eternal Christmas, and we'll be exploring uh, the fact that Christmas is indeed the gift that keeps on giving. There is eternal implications surrounding the coming of Jesus, and some of those gifts that we will experience in eternity, and yes, we experience some of them even now, our joy, peace, and Christmas Eve, we'll be taking a look at heaven together. So uh, I'm looking forward to getting into that and looking forward to seeing what God's Word has to say. You remember the saying well, don't you? Your mama, with her good earthly wisdom, told you, never pick up a stray. You just don't pick up strays. And it was then followed by the sagely advice because you don't know where they've been. Now, there's a man from Manitoba, Canada, named Eric Boroditsky, who disregarded Mama's wisdom, and it could have gone really badly for him. Well, driving late at night, Eli, I guess I said his name was Eric, it's Eli, noticed a, a, a flash in front of his high beams as he was driving down the road. You've been there before. You're driving in a dark place, there's a narrow field of vision, and then you see something move from this side of the road to that side of the road, and and you panic for a second, and you ask yourself, did I just see a Yeti? Because friends, that's where Yeti stories come from. Now for Eli, he saw that flash, and he heard a dreadful thud. He stopped the car and winced as he saw a dog lying on the shoulder. Like any good Samaritan, Eli couldn't just leave the dog on the side of the road, so he approached the animal, he gently patted it, spoke calmly to it, and then placed the animal into his car. Again, it was night, it's 10 o'clock at night, he's working a night shift. And so he couldn't just take the animal to the hospital, he had to call animal control. He drove to Bothwell Cheese Factory in New Bothwell, Manitoba, just south of Winnipeg, and he called out one of his co-workers to see the animal that he had harmed as they were waiting for animal control, and this is what the co-worker saw. Now, in case you're wondering, is that a coyote? I would like to assure you it absolutely is. And that, my friends, is precisely why Mama knows best. (laughs) Now clearly, we're dealing here with a case of mistaken identity because Eli, in the dark of night, thought that was a German shepherd or a husky. (laughs) And he came within an inch of wrestling with Wile E. Coyote. Now, you can laugh all you want at poor Eli, but you can also put yourself in his shoes for a moment and see how at night maybe you would make a mistake like this because, you know, coyotes kind of look similar to domesticated dogs. But 
Make no mistake, the identity distinction matters. Coyotes are not interested in coming home and becoming your little frou-frou or Fido. So, as we look at this analogy and we get into the Gospel of Luke, we're going to see a parallel with this analogy and those who congregate around Jesus. There can be mistaken identity. Because disciples and those who merely associate with Jesus sometimes can look pretty similar to one another. But make no mistake, Jesus explains, when push comes to shove, there are certain qualities that identify his disciples from the crowd. You might be asking, what are those? And we're going to see that made clear as we make our way through this text. So we pick up with verse 12. Now, I want you to notice that there have been certain footnotes along the way in Luke's gospel. Footnotes that tell us something about the habit of Jesus. If you look at Luke 4.42, it tells us that Jesus departed and went to a desolate place. And there was a press of crowds, so you can understand why he would do this. But then Luke 5.16 explains that this was more than just getting some me time. It says that he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Now, when I think about Jesus being the Son of God and I think about prayer, sometimes my mind says, why would Jesus need to pray? I mean, you think of all the people in the world who might not need to pray and Jesus kind of tops that list. But Luke shows us something very important about Jesus. Jesus is fully God, but yes, He is also fully man. And as a man, Jesus must do what we need to do. He must draw his strength from the heavenly Father, depend on him for everything. Listen to Jesus' words in John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And how did Jesus receive the Father's will? Was it not through prayer? So now we pick up verse 12, and he's praying as something significant is about to happen. It says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued to pray. Now this must be a significant moment because of the intensity of prayer and the duration of prayer. You think back to the book of Exodus as Moses is ascending Mount Sinai and he's about to go and receive the Ten Commandments from God and what a marked moment that was in the life of Israel. Like that, Jesus climbs this mountain in isolation and prays. In fact, he prays all night. As you look at the life and ministry of Jesus, every major turning point, we're seeing him going to the Father in prayer. And it's intense, it's focused, it's concentrated. Why? Because prayer is the key to it all. It's the difference maker. It's the supreme demonstration of faith. Prayer says, God, I can't move forward without your direction. I can't make critical decisions until I've discussed them with you. So I want you to see this principle, and this is an important one. We all must only move as fast as the pace of prayer. Any faster, 
is inviting disaster into your world. And any slower than the pace of prayer, I would submit to you, is being led by fear and not by faith. So Jesus moved at that pace in this important night. He went up the mountain. He prays all night. And he's about to advance his mission. And how does he do this? We see that he prays and asks God who he should develop as those foundational leaders of the church. He knew that everything depended on this decision because he knew that his marching orders were to march to the cross. So look there at verses 13 through 16. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. That word apostle is an important office that Jesus was calling these twelve into. The word itself means sent one, and they were these 12 individuals called to be the, the pillars or the building blocks of the church. They would raise it up. We also, as we look in the New Testament, see that there was another apostle that was raised, raised up for an important purpose. His name was Paul, and he was raised up to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Now you think about this night of prayer. And even though Luke makes this footnote and tells us that a coyote, Judas, had found his way into the inner circle of Jesus, and we're going to come back to that in a little bit. We're going to talk about how that could happen. But let, make no mistake, it didn't surprise Jesus. It didn't catch him off guard. He knew. But think about this. Jesus' prayer-paced choices were incredibly effective. Okay, when you think about these individuals that he called to be apostles, following his death, his resurrection, his ascension of the church, the church explodes like a grassroots movement. In fact, this church is so effective that the most powerful empire, and I would submit to you in human history, Rome, having more control over more area and population than any other empire in human history. These Christ ones can't be squashed by this empire. In fact, they end up taking over this empire. In fact, you're sitting in a church today some 5,500 miles from the place where Jesus taught and we're talking about Jesus. We're singing about Jesus. We're believing in Jesus. All because of this night of prayer. Now, do you ever wonder if your prayers matter? Does it ever feel like as you're praying, my words just bouncing off of the ceiling and then coming back down on me? Well, friends, when we're praying in alignment with the will of God, I, I, I see here in the Bible and we see all over the place in the Bible that it is doing far more than we can even imagine or understand as we pray. That's why we need to be a praying church. And um, I want to call us to a challenge. The prayer team and myself, the elders, we're, we're going to ask in, in the month of January that our church comes together, that we align around 21 days of focused prayer. 
And we're going to do this devotion together. It's called Praying the King's Agenda. Church, if, if you want to know an agenda for a church, what better agenda is there than, than Jesus' agenda for the church? So I would ask that all of us, as we do this, it begins on January 12th, that we would just sideline our devotions for 21 days, whatever we have going on, and focus on this together because prayer is so important. And if Jesus would only move at the pace of prayer, doesn't it make sense that we should too? Now let's move on. Let's move forward and we're going to see Jesus coming down from the mountain and entering into the plateau area. Uh, Verse 17 tells us, And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem, the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. So he's going viral increasingly, becoming more and more popular. The the, the influence and the range of people who are hearing about him and are now coming to congregate around him is growing in an exponential fashion. But Luke wants us to see something important in these verses. This is a mixed crowd. He's drawing a dividing line for those who come around Jesus. Notice the language. It says that there's a crowd of His disciples and there is a great multitude of people. And both of these groups, it seems similar, both seem excited about Jesus. In fact, you can even think that maybe they're accepting of Jesus. But Luke says they're not the same. Commentator Daryl Bach explains it like this. Humankind is divided into two groups, poor and rich, humble and proud, responsive and unresponsive. Every listener belongs in one of two camps. The question is, which one? So we have to ask ourselves a question as we look at this dynamic in Luke We have to ask ourselves, am I getting lost in the crowd? And Luke's trying to tell us, don't get lost in the crowd. How do you get lost in the crowd? What do I mean by that? Well, you can get lost in the crowd by having an affinity for the things of Jesus, but never truly embracing Jesus by faith. In our own context, many people have gotten lost in the crowd because of moralism. They, they've said, you know, basically, I'm just adding a little bit of Jesus into my world because I'm basically a good person. So I don't need that much help from God. I just need something to kind of get me over the edge. Or some of us believe that we were in some way, shape, or form born into it because, you know, mom and dad were religious people. Friends, that's getting lost in the crowd. That's not understanding what it means to be a disciple. And i got to tell you, it's so easy to get lost in the crowd. It's easy to like the things associated with Jesus, look at some of His teachings, and you, know, you look at His teachings, and they're, they're, they're incredible teachings. Religious figures all over the world, secularists all over the world have looked at Jesus' teachings and they've all nodded their head and said, that's pretty good. So it's easy to ascribe to all of that, but not to believe that He died in my place. 
for my sins. You convince yourself. You say, I'm a Christian because I associate with Christians and I do Christian-like things. (laughs) For crying out loud, I'm a Republican, right? Now, I say that because some people believe it. Friends, I did a lot of evangelism in West West Virginia where people got lost in the crowd. Uh, They liked the idea of Jesus. They even came forward at four years old when the preacher said, come down to the altar and you will get saved. And they did that. But you know what? There was no difference in them. The only thing that separated them from the person who didn't walk the ten steps down the aisles was the ten steps. That was it. Only distinction, but in terms of moral choices, church attendance, loving people in the way Christ loved them, uh, chasing after things like succession, ambition, and all of that kind of stuff, no difference at all. None. And that's why the Gospel tells us over and over again that it's not by works. You cannot work your way up to God's approval. In fact, in Ephesians 2.8, Paul tells us that it's only by grace through faith. Do you know what grace means? Grace means that you receive something that you couldn't possibly earn. You couldn't do enough to get it because the Bible says that the core of our identity before, before trusting Jesus is a sinner. It means that I'm ruined. I can't justify myself before God. In fact, grace means that you must admit before God that you have no solutions to offer when it comes to your salvation. That Jesus provides the only solution for your salvation. And this grace, according to the Bible, it radically changes the human heart. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a, a new creation. So let's go back to that first analogy for a moment. And it might be hard to hear this, but it's true. We all begin as spiritual coyotes. All of us. We're born spiritually untamable. The Bible says even at enmity with God, but God's grace changes the very spiritual DNA of a person when you trust Jesus by faith, when you believe that He died in your place. And Paul tells us that when you've trusted Jesus, the old passes away. Behold, the new has come. So now we understand Judas Iscariot. Judas never experienced transformation. He was lost in the crowd. And when he grew disenfranchised, he turned, lashed out, and bit Jesus. Let's move on. We move to the beginning of Jesus's sermon. Now, when I talk about Jesus's sermon, I mean the sermon. The sermon. And Matthew, we refer to this sermon in Matthew 5-7 through as the Sermon on the Mount. And Luke, a lot of Luke and scholars would refer to this as the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, if you ask the question, is it the same sermon or different sermons? You read ten commentators, five say it's the same, five say it's different. I kind of hold to the it's the same. You can take that for whatever you want. Now, to make sense of this sermon, you have to understand the audience. Is Jesus talking to the crowd or is he talking to disciples here? And look there at verse 20. It's clear. 
He lifted his eyes on who? His disciples. But isn't that interesting? In the midst of the crowd, Jesus is having a fireside chat with his true followers. So everyone's welcome. Everyone's welcome to the table to hear. Jesus has nothing to hide. He's not like one of those uh, mystic, secretive cults where you have to advance up the ranks to get the truth. No, Jesus openly, publicly declares this sermon in front of the crowd. You know why? Because Jesus wants the crowd to become disciples. That's his goal. And he has nothing to hide. No matter how you slice it, Jesus' sermon is countercultural. And I mean this in the sense of every culture that has ever existed in any point in history. Countercultural. If you question that, just allow me to demonstrate it by asking this question Which would you rather be? Which would you rather be? And you can choose between two lists of four. Would you rather be poor, hungry, sad, and hated, or rich, well fed, happy, and popular. Let me say that again in case you need help making up your mind. Poor, hungry, sad, hated, or rich, well-fed, happy, and popular. Now these two lists, Jesus uses these to distinguish the crowd from the disciple. We begin by looking at these identifiers and we'll see first that True disciples know that Jesus is the only solution. Look there at verses uh, 20, uh, verse 20. It says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And then verse 24, he says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Now we need to demystify this somewhat. Is this like class warfare a la Karl Marx? Is he saying essentially that, you know, if you're rich, you have no hope? But if you're poor, free ticket to heaven. Well, frankly, if that's what he's saying, I think we're all in a lot of trouble in this room. Uh, because when you compare our wealth in Western society compared to other parts of the world, we more strongly identify with the rich than the poor. Now, I know that that's experienced differently where you live. There's certain places uh, where you would go, and, and, and I get it, where they would be extremely poor, and it's, it's really not comparable. And, and we're sitting there saying, I don't feel really rich at all because I'm barely making my bills. I get that. But true poverty, true poverty, deals with things such as you don't know when your next meal is coming. You, you can't get your kids educated. You don't have adequate shelter. You're, you're not in proximity to a safe water source and other just horrible dynamics that come along with it. So clearly, Jesus is not saying that the rich have no hope. He's speaking here of tendency and not absolutes. This would have been a reassuring message to the disciples because in their culture, they assumed that God's favor was upon the rich. Because clearly, if they have good things going on for them, then God must be in favor of them. But Jesus is saying this, socioeconomic status does nothing to make a person right with God. Socioeconomic status does nothing to make a person right with God. However, here's the distinction. 
we do see in the Bible that a person's economic condition does have the potential to help and to hurt them spiritually. What do I mean by this? Well, I mean that the poor tend to have less obstacles preventing them from trusting Jesus. Okay? You look at James 2.5, and James says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in what? Faith. And heirs to the kingdom, which He has promised to those who love Him. And, and I think in some ways, Osterville Baptist Church serves as a little... Uh, object lesson of this. Remember, you know, I, I get it. Wealth and poverty and that kind of stuff is contextual. So most of us in this church make up what we would call the middle class. We make up the middle class. Now think about where we're situated in terms of location. This church has been preaching the gospel in Osterville for 180 years. And if all people were equally receptive to the gospel, in fact, if it was blessed are the rich then OBC would be predominantly filled with the uber-wealthy. Predominantly. In fact, I sometimes chuckle as I have conversations with people because they come to me and they say things like, oh, I don't know if I could ever go to Osterville Baptist Church. I don't think I could kind of associate with the, the Osterville types. And I just say, <laughs> you just don't know us. <laughs> you don't know us. Oh, uh, boy. It's funny the things people think, isn't it? Now, if God has trusted you with wealth, you must take seriously the caution in Jesus' words. Paul instructs Timothy in the same way. He says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything. And then he tells them, be generous and ready to share. You see, the Gospel changes how I identify with my money. It changes that. And a discipleship question for the rich that we must ask ourselves is, when is good good enough? When is good good enough? Part of my discipleship as a Christian, if I have income, is to settle upon a standard of living and to be content with that. It's to avoid the perpetual upgrade trap which we can so easily succumb to in this culture. So determine a standard and then ask, how can I be generous with my abundance? You see, we need to not be the rich. We need to identify as the blessed poor. And those, who are, those are those who come to God and say, you know, I can't rely on my money to save me. My, my money is something. It's a tool. I'm actually a master of it. It's not a master of me. And, and this is something that God has given me as a stewardship that I can use for the sake of His glory. So we come to it and think of our salvation and, and even think of the way that we relate in the world and say, I don't have solutions. I'm not in control. I can't manipulate things with this money. And Jesus makes that same point in verse 21 when He says, blessed are those who are hunger now. Blessed are those who mourn. Verse 25, the antithesis. Those who are full and those who laugh, those represent the people who don't think they need any solutions because they think they have all the solutions. I've got money. I've got things. I'm satisfied. I'm filled. I don't need anything. Well, the disciple says, 
I don't have solutions because Jesus is the only solution. Wealth won't save you. Confidence won't save you. Having stuff is worthless to prevent death and eternity. So really, Jesus is taking, talking about the fact that we need grace. You need grace. And what, what does it take to receive grace? Well, I would tell you that this, it, it requires brokenness, humility, spiritual self-awareness. And without these things, no one can enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' final point has to do with cost. Look at verses 22 and 23. He said, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so your fathers did to the prophets. Now, what is the cost that he's talking about here? It's fourfold, isn't it? He talks about being hated, excluded, reviled, and spurned. And why is this cost coming? Is it because you're an abrasive person and people you just can't get along with people? Well, no, that just means you're kind of a jerk and you need to work on your personality a little bit. No, Jesus says that the cost is on account of the Son of Man. When you identify with Jesus, he says, the coyotes might bite you because they bit him. Let me ask you, what does it cost you to follow Jesus? What does it cost you? Anything? Even like a sideways look or a jeer? Are you the black sheep of the family because you know you got Jesus and now everyone looks at you as a little bit nutty? I'm not a doom and gloom kind of person. Uh, You know, people make these apocalyptic pronouncements about the economy and uh, the planet and these asteroids that are going to hit us at any second and all these kind of things. And, and I hear these things all the time and I just kind of look at it and I'm going, eh, I don't know, I don't think that's going to happen. You know, that's just, that's the way I'm wired, glass half full kind of guy. But, but as I think about cost for being a Christian, I look down time in this culture, in this American culture, and I I believe in the next two decades, there will be a much greater cost associated with being a Christian in this culture. A cost unlike a cost that we've had to pay before. Even now, it's no longer very popular to be a Christian, but just imagine a time when you will be regarded as a bigot, as close-minded, and harmful to the greater good because of your faith. In fact, imagine a change of context for a moment. Now we're no longer in America. You're no longer living in a context where you can congregate like we are this morning, where you can read your Bible, the Bible that you treasure, where you write your notes as God speaks to your heart as you're reading the Word of God. A place where you can't send your kids off to Christian schools should you choose where instead of doing any of those things, you're constantly looking over your shoulder. You're unsure whether or not you'll be arrested. Where there's actually government-led programs that stand in opposition that seek to prevent and, and squash your faith. Unfortunately, that's what most of the world experiences. Most of the world. 
on sabbatical, I was reading this book. It's called Persecuted, and um, it was really eye-opening for me. I just wanted to share a couple of things that I learned from this book. As they were describing the thesis of this book, why they had written it, the author said that our book focuses on an underreported fact that Christians are the single most widely persecuted religious group in the world today. This is confirmed in studies by sources as diverse as Vatican Open Doors, New Research Center, Commentary, Newsweek, and The Economist. According to one estimate by the Catholic Bishops' Conference of the European Community, 75% of all acts of religious intolerance are directed at Christians. I saw elsewhere in this book that out of the 195 countries of the world, 133 have some form of persecution. Now, I know what we, we've thought about persecution. We, we've heard stories and reports where we think that when persecution comes into a country that the gospel explodes in that place and, and Christianity becomes unleashed in those places. But that's only half the story. It's only half the story. Yes, in countries like China and Vietnam and Cuba, Christianity has rebounded and rejuvenated, but that was only when persecution became less intense. Indeed, as you look at other places of the world, look at the decline in Iraq. This was written in 2013. It might be a little dated, but 35% Christian population went to 1.5%. Syria, 40% to 10%. Turkey, 32% to 0.15%. That essentially means that Christianity was wiped out of Turkey. It's gone. No longer exists. There are a third of the population out. What does that mean? Well, friends, this is what it means. Persecution, especially the extreme forms of persecution, will require everything of your faith to stand firm. Everything. So Jesus says, count the cost. And as he totals up the cost, it seems like his math is a little wonky, doesn't it? I mean, he says, blessed are you when people hate you and rejoice in that day and leap for joy. I mean, what kind of math is that? It's like he has a broken calculator and he's just hitting buttons and, and, and things are coming out and he's going to give people receipts and say, here you go, here you go. Oh, it's so good to follow me. Come on along. Remember when I asked you what kind of list you wanted? Poor, hungry, sad, hated, or rich? Or rich, well-fed, happy, and popular? Which list adds a better? Which list adds a better? Rich, well-fed, happy, and popular always adds a better. Always. Well, that is, it always adds up better when you have removed heaven from the equation. It turns out that when you add heaven into the equation, that it so greatly weighs the equation in the favor of poor, hungry, sad, and uh, hated that the equation just busts apart. Listen again to what Jesus says in these blessings. Blessed are you who are poor for what? Yours is the kingdom of God. 
Blessed are you who are hungry now. Why? For you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, because what? Your reward is great in heaven. So Jesus notes in verse 23 that that's why the prophets kept doing what they were doing. They understood. They could see that eternity beats the temporary every time. You see, when you put eternity into the equation, do you have $70 billion? So what? When you put eternity in the equation, did you live for 120 years? Well, I'm not even convinced it would be really great after 110. (laughs) When you put eternity into the equation, oh, I'm so popular, I have 300 million followers. On YouTube, everyone loves me. No, they don't. Eternity always beats the temporary. Yesterday was a difficult day in the life of our family. Uh, We mourned the loss of one of our daughters, Neely Laux. And in the message, I read these words from John Newton. If you know John Newton, he's an amazing guy. He was a former slave trader and And somewhere along the way, he came to realize that he had no solutions to offer for his salvation. He was broken by the grace of God and started walking with God and became so enraptured with the grace of God that he wrote the song that we sing, Amazing Grace. As he was preaching at a funeral service of a man who suffered greatly in his life, he said these words, He was one of those who came out of great tribulation. He suffered much here for 27 years, but eternity is long enough to make amends for all. For what is all he endured in this life when compared with the rest which remaineth for the children of God? Friends, true disciples feel those words deep in their bones. We know this is in our home. In fact, Hebrews 13, 14 says, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So as you enter into this sermon, blessed are, woe to. The question we all must be asking ourselves as we look at the Word of God is, Where am I in the dividing line? Am I part of the crowd? Or am I a disciple? Would you bow your heads with me this morning?